the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Holastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Holastic, and I am co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to small nonprofits. Our line of credit program is easy, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for your nonprofit. If you'd like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file that you'll be able to use if you use your line of credit. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Just remember the time to set up your line of credit is today, not when you actually have the emergency. Uh, again, that is our website is nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Jay Frost from Frost on Fundraising. Over the last three decades, Jay has worked to identify and pursue billions in fundraising opportunities for thousands of charitable organizations around the world. Jay has been recognized as one of the nonprofit influencers to start following today by DonorBox, by Philanthropy Media, and by Elevation Media, amongst many, many others. A popular speaker, Jay has addressed hundreds of meetings in the U.S., U.K., Canada, Asia, and the Middle East, and online. Jay is also a consultant to nonprofits and an advisor to companies serving the philanthropic philanthropic, uh, marketplace. He advises organizations at all stages of their efforts, from startup through capital campaigns. Jay, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thanks for inviting me to hang out with you, Stevens. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Well, I know it's going to be a good one. I mean, you have a lot of a good experience. And, and honestly, all my guests have really, really great experience. But, you know, today's topic is going to get a lot of, uh, a lot of downloads. A lot of people are really going to be interested in it because it's, it's, you know, everybody's really working on it. And that is, you know, today's topic is power prospecting for fundraising. And, you know, with a name like prospecting, right, that's, that's a very business term, isn't it? It, it is. <laughs> yeah. And that, works, scares, that scares people sometimes, doesn't it? it, it well, yeah. I, I guess it depends upon how long people have been in the field and, and, um, and whether or not they're, they're used to that kind of terminology. But yeah. all we're really talking about is finding people who care about the same stuff and have some resources to apply to the same, the same things that we care about. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I come from a sales background. I, for the first eight and a half years of my career, I worked for Xerox, right? And for those of you who may or may not know Xerox, Xerox was the Google of its day. And uh, it really had, you know, incredible training, great people working there. And, but when most people think of sales and fundraising really is a form of a sale, right? Uh, they think, you know, they think of, a retail salesperson or a used car salesman, or, you know, a re- that's their experience. But in professional sales or professional fundraising, it's not that way at all, is it? No. And in fact, when you even mentioning the word sales is another one of those third rails. Yeah. Right? Because people have all these negative associations. I think maybe because um, we've all had bad experiences with people trying to sell us stuff that we didn't want. They weren't yep. listening to us. 
And, yeah. But honestly, whether we use that word or not, and whatever words we choose to use, as long as they're understandable to the people who, who want to f- support our work, that's fine with me. But I think it's really important that we get comfortable with the first tenet of good sales and good fundraising, which is getting very comfortable with listening to people and finding out what their needs and interests are. We can't end up being in this field like the proverbial uh, car salesperson. And by the way, this is the worst case example. So for the car salespeople listening in, we're not insulting those folks. <laughs> yeah. fine. But, you know, the, the kind of the running old joke about some guy who uh, says, well, we have this mirror so you can powder your nose to a female customer when women are so much the marketplace. And and, and even though that's a ridiculous example of bad salesmanship, I do think we run into a lot of that in our marketplace where uh, donors are, in fact, primarily women, where women drive a lot of philanthropy, and where women are also uh, a, a bulk of the workforce in fundraising. And um, But even though we have that advantage of a lot of women who are so, such wonderful professionals and often talking to women who give, I do think that throughout our field, regardless of gender, regardless of how long people have been in it, whether somebody is coming in fresh or they've been here for 30 years, listening is a skill we not only need to have when we start, but we need to continually develop because that's the key to figuring out where the opportunities are and where the prospects really reside is listen first, then do everything else. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that um, in that the key to good fundraising uh, really is asking great questions. Yes, I agree. And then listening, right? So, so really, if you get into a more professional fundraising, a more professional sales situation, mm-hmm. there is you ask the right questions at the right time in the right manner, and then you listen and you shut up. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's all. It's like doing a podcast. <laughs> really, I wanna. I wanna ask good questions, and then. You know, and the the reason for that is is often um, one you want to learn, mm-hmm. and you know professional salespeople do they, they uh, or and you know I'm using that interchangeably of fundraising, right. Uh, right? They are they're willing to say uh, I'm not the right match for you, right? Oh, and I think that's no. the key. Right? I completely agree, and yeah. and we've got to get comfortable with that. And there was a an exchange just a few days ago on Twitter, which I know. Um, a, a lot of us, Twitter drives us crazy, but there's a little bit of, uh, of good content there. And the conversation was all about how we shouldn't fear losing a donor. And I mean, we could talk about that for an hour, but, but the central part of that is, um, well, we shouldn't be afraid of not, uh, not trying to draw in somebody who isn't interested in what we do. If we're doing what you just said, we're asking good questions, right? The right questions at the right time of the right people, then uh, then we're going to find people who are aligned with our values and our interests and our mission. And if we're not doing that, we are selling in the worst sense of the word. And that, it doesn't work. And I wonder if maybe that's why, and I'll be interested to hear if you agree, that so many people have almost as much problem fundraising, both people outside our profession and within it, as they do with salespeople. Because ultimately, it's about this fear of, of asking somebody to do something they don't want to do. When in fact, great fundraising, like great sales, is really empowering people to do what they want to do. That's that's what that's where it all starts: is giving people the opportunity to do something that's really meaningful to them and meaningful to us. It's that marriage. Yeah, I think I think first you have to get past the what type of person are you? Are you a you know a um, 
uh, an A personality or are you more of a, uh, a type B personality, right? That's the first h- hurdle. Sure. Okay. And by the way, people who are type B personalities can do very, very well in sales it, because they can usually ask very good, thoughtful questions. Um, but that's the first hurdle is making that first. And that's why someone like you, I know, uh, you know, when you're working potentially with clients, that's probably something like people are so fearful of their type B if they haven't really fundraised before because they don't really know where to start, mm-hmm. right? And and helping them by saying, well, this is how you kind of get started. It, that helps them get over the hurdle. And then once you've done it a couple of times, it, you're like, oh, it's not so bad, um, right? Is that my accurate in saying that? Well, no, I agree with you. Uh, yeah. and, and in part, I wonder if maybe... Um, if our personalities, uh, there are a lot of people who do personality tests and they apply it to different industries, but that's also true in this, in, in our field, where, for example, um, the people over uh, at Brian Saber and, and his team at Asking Matters do a personality profile. It's sort of like a, a Myers-Briggs for fundraising, where they're trying mm-hmm. to figure out where the personalities align. But the reason why I mention this is because uh, you mentioned type A and type B personalities, and I... And I, and I think that some people think you need to have a type A personality to sell or to fundraise. And I don't think that's true. I think, as you just said, if, we, if we're positioned to do, uh, to do our best job of engaging with someone who's interested in the same things we are, um, that whether that's being that kind of bright, shiny you know, uh, person who's representing the cause, uh, because that's what the prospective donor needs, or whether it's to as you said, shut up and listen for a bit and then show them that we've heard them, that either of those things can work quite well if we have the right chemistry between us and prospective donors. Um, and, and in my own case, uh, I'm a bit of both. So I, even though a, a lot of my work is making presentations and, and I love uh, going and speaking when we can do that, um, it, I, I'm actually quite shy in some respects. So when I'm sitting down with someone like I'm sitting down with you, uh, I need to sort of know what the terms of engagement are. And so asking questions is the way that helps me navigate that path. So even though um, I'm more reticent to start jumping in and trying to tell somebody something, that's not who I am. I'm very comfortable once I've had a chance to listen to you and find out what's, what's in your heart and in your mind, what kinds of needs and interests you have. How are you trying to respond to you know, your family, your business? your vision for the future, how you want to be remembered when you die. And it's so much easier to navigate that entire conversation if I just open my ears and shut my mouth for me. It doesn't work for everyone, but it works for me. And conversely, getting in front of a crowd is also really easy because now I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand up there. People need to hear something and so forth. And I think there's a there's a, something, at least in my mind, that combines these two very different sorts of activities, but make them both comfortable, I think for many of us in fundraising. And that is that we are focused on the other. That whether we're standing in front of a crowd of a few hundred people trying to share something that we know, or whether we're sitting down with someone one-on-one and we're listening intently to who they are, that in both cases, we're focused not on ourselves and our identity and what we're trying to perform or any of that other nonsense. We're trying to focus on the other people and what their needs and interests are. It makes our work easier, and frankly, it makes it much more fulfilling for the people in the audience or the prospective donors sitting across the table from us. Yeah, I think you have the other – there's another angle, too, on uh, people who are type A personalities. 
And that is that you have a certain personality in type A uh, for sales that just talk way too much, <laughs> that they're just a chatterbox and they're throwing things out and a client you know, uh, right. can get blown away, a prospect can get blown away from it. And you could say something that really the person who's listening, the prospect's like, oh, I don't want that, mm -hmm. you know, and so you're giving out too much information. So I think, you know, I think a, a type B pe people have uh, a uh, an advantage in that they're going to think through the process a, a little bit more where you have some type A personalities that uh, they they just go, 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 go. And I think that's a real issue. Would you what would you have you seen that? I, I have, um, but mm -hmm. I know that both can work. So yeah. I, I try not to um, put people too far down in a pigeonhole because I know that, once again, if they're sitting with the right, you know, with the personality, it's a good fit for that conversation, whether they're you're, uh, operating at 150 miles an hour or 25 miles per hour, mm -hmm. that as long as it's the right combination of personalities, that that's fine. It's, and in fact, um, one of the questions that comes up a lot, and you've probably experienced this a lot also, is uh, do we go alone on a fundraising call? This is major gifts now I'm thinking about. Or do we go in a team and who's going to ask and all this stuff, which sounds very technical. But I think a lot of it, personally, I think it boils down to do we have a person who's comfortable listening and making sure that that, that, that's, that part of the conversation from the prospective donor is filtering through everything we say? Um, and then do we have a person who's comfortable then having heard that, uh, able to make the case or at least reiterate it in terms that make sense to that donor? And, and, and I also think this is true irrespective of how long we've known the person, because if the person is, is uh, new to us or they've been giving for 25 years, they're still going through a process of deciding whether to make a gift to, to our organization for a particular project or need or um, whether to give that money perhaps to their children. And these are emotional decisions and they require time. And if I talked to you 20 years ago and then I talked to you today and I talked to you 20 years from now, we're both here, you probably will be, I, I hope <laughs> I will, um, the, the conversation will be different. So I should be really trying to tailor that to you. And if I do have a pairing in a, in a meeting, you know, with somebody else who kind of compliments me, then that can sometimes be a constructive way of engaging with the person, but still getting our message out in a way that's receivable to that to that donor. Yeah, I, I, I like going on with somebody else as long as before we go in, uh, we have a conversation about what each other's roles and responsibilities are. Yeah. And, you know, also, if I'm going on that call with somebody, uh, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm going to make sure I, I know them. And if I think that they're not good on the call, I'm either going to want, uh, you know, I mean, before we go in, I'm going to coach them a little bit, uh, or I'm going to say, no, I'm not bringing you because of whatever reason. But let's say another reason, like if I know someone's a chatterbox, uh, I will remind them, you know, before we go in there, hey, listen, you know, we're here to ask good questions. We're here to learn. We're not here to sell. You know, we might walk out of this without something and that's fine because it wasn't a match. And, uh, you know, let's face it, that person, you know, uh, uh, might have to go again with other people or, or myself. So um, so let's get right down to the, the, the topic that we have today for power prospecting. 
uh, uh, we've talked a lot about s- styles, but um, tell us tell us a little bit about what you think power prospecting entails. Well, it 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 really does come down to our ability to see what's important in information. So whether we're receiving that information in the form of a of a meeting with someone, you know, they're suggesting a person might be interested in a project. Whether it's we're listening to see whether or not that individual is interested, whether an institution with which they're affiliated might have an interest, we're listening for all those things. So I do think that even though what we seen what we were talking about a second ago doesn't sound related to prospecting, it is. And in fact, um, so the, my career arc began as a grant maker, and I started in 1985, and I was a really young guy giving away money, um, and. Uh, through to today when I'm working as a consultant, as you know, uh, to capital campaigns, things of that nature. And we need to find individuals and institutions, but mainly individuals who can make things happen. So throughout that entire course of history, we've also seen a big change in access to information. But the need to listen first and whether listening means sitting down, you know, uh, 38, you know, what, 36 inches, 42 inches from somebody and listening, or whether it means to uh, listen a little more carefully when we Google the universe. Um, I think that those are really key elements. So um, when I think about prior prospecting, first of all, I think about tuning into the things that matter and trying to not throw out all the rest, but just put it on the sidelines a little bit. Just let, let, sure we can absorb it, sort of like we're driving on the highway. And we know when we passed a nice field or a, a place that we might want to stop for lunch on the return trip, but we're not going to let it occupy our minds. We're not going to look for all the bright, shiny objects. We're focused on where we're trying to go and the information we're trying to get to get there. Um, so there are a number of things that I think can help us uh, that we can listen for. Um, some of them are very specific to a person's ability to give, and some are very specific to their affinity. Um, and, and one comment before we talk through this, and I'd love to do it as a conversation to see where you agree on these things and where you have other advice for listeners. But um, there's often this argument, uh, discussion in our field about how it either has to be about affinity or it has to be about wealth. Um, and now there's an additional conversation that's a really important one going on about how maybe it's neither of those things. It has to be all community-based entirely. Um, but that's that's a conversation for another day. But I, I think that that first conversation about um, it should be about a person's affinity today or their wealth today is 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 wrong. It has to be a blend. So it, it, we, we, we can build affinity to some degree by the relationships we build through the things that we've been discussing already today. Um, but we cannot change their hearts. All we can do is try and gauge where their hearts are. That's what affinity is about. And then we can build on that through that relationship of trust. Um, they trust us to be a good steward of, their, of their, um, their, their resources, to invest in things that grow. That's the affinity component. But we can't build their wealth for them. And the reality of every campaign, every significant campaign, is that the vast majority of the money in $100 million campaigns, it's something like 97%, is coming from fewer than 2.5% of the donors. Mm. So we have to know not just not just show the love to all, although that's very, very important, but we have to also figure out where the opportunities are among people who care today and have resources today or potentially tomorrow through estate giving. So that intersection is critical. And so who has that? 
there are really six categories of people. Um, and one would be the people who are giving to us already significantly uh, over time, right? The traditional model of maybe a planned giving prospect. Sometimes the gifts can be small, but they're repeated over time. Um, that's one characteristic or the cumulative giving is important characteristic. That's something we have immediately at our disposal in a database. That's one easy thing. Another would be where they're giving elsewhere. Why are they giving to that organization instead of us? The answer is often because we haven't asked them or we've asked them to give us 25 or $100 and we haven't built a relationship of trust. It's all transactional. So they haven't had the opportunity yet to engage with us and to, to love us, to work together. And that that's another pocket we can look at is where they've given. That sounds obvious, but often people don't look there. And that's uh, that data is now readily available. It wasn't 10 years ago. It is today. And we can also look at political giving as a huge um, indicator of that, because uh, people who make political donations in excess of $250 in this country to federal campaigns are going to be in the top 1% of your donor pool and mm. probably giving as much as 50 to 70% of the money to your institution. Mm. And hardly anybody looks at that. Um, so giving to others that are similar to you. Then we have people who are in uh, business owners, let's say principally in my mind, they do over $10 million in business and they own maybe 40, 50% or more of the business and they're over 45 years of age. All people who have a little more liquidity, they're driving revenue or they're gonna sell their business. Um, or people who are insiders in the stock market, a very tiny pool of people, probably no more than 800,000 or so living and dead since 1985. Those people are generally liquid. And everybody thinks that they're well-known, and so we don't want to bother them because they're besieged. It's nonsense. That it, we, it, those things are changing all the time, and we can see that. That's readily available. So that's the money. Then there's the affinity. And we can look at that in lots of different ways. But some of it is suggested by where they've given before or how they've given to us. But other things are things that we can do. We can look in places like, again, uh, Twitter. If we want to know if a guy cares about women and cancer, he might have said he went on the Avon walk for cancer and no guy's going to walk 60 miles unless he loves a woman who suffered from breast cancer. It's just not going to happen. So it, it, that kind of thing is not in our database. It's not in somebody else's database. It's right there in front of us through social media, which we often ignore. So there are lots of different indicators, but the ones I like best are the ones that are closest to home. They're the ones that really tell us what they've done, what they want to do, and do they have the capacity to do it? Um, and there's one last one I'll mention because I left it out, and that's service on a foundation board or service on a nonprofit board. Because while it's not a perfect, um, uh, you know, one-to-one -one correlation, uh, the people who are who we invite to serve on our board usually have the resources, uh, the time, and the commitment to do so, and they often make up a big component of our giving. So if you were to go and screen your database, you might find as much as 30% of your money is coming from people who are serving on these boards. Uh, it, it's going to be a little higher or lower than that for every organization. Every organization is different. But if we are truly spreading the net as we get to know people out there in the community, and then we bring that in and analyze our data to find who is in these different pockets, the private business, public businesses, insiders, people who are giving large scale gifts to other organizations, political campaigns, giving to us significantly over time or cumulatively or serving on boards. We're going to find the people who are in the best position to then give a significant gift to us in a campaign. So it sounds like a long answer to a simple question, but um, here's the bottom line. 
what we can do as organizations is something that we couldn't have done when I started. And I, I don't know about you, but it, it, it would have been impossible to screen a database and then take that at a very low cost, take the data, take the top 100, 200, 300 people by whatever characteristics we think are most important to us and to the donors, and then to just pick up the phone, which most people don't even do anymore. And to just have a conversation like the ones we started this conversation about. We saw that you gave to us. That's so wonderful. We just wanted to take the time to thank you and find out more about what made you decide to give. There, there's no, no talk about it, a second gift right now. This is all to just find out who they are and why they've done it and then to build on that relationship. And I know from my personal mystery shopping as a donor, and I'd love to hear if you, this is your experience too, that we are very, very poor on that component. The additional stewardship pieces, which are very personal in nature with people with high capacity and close affinity. And that means that they will go elsewhere. We either show them the love or they'll send their love to somebody else. And it's at our disposal, a few thousand dollars, a little bit of time, a researcher either on the staff or elsewhere to do the prospecting I've described. We'll let them then just take those steps to a few hundred people, get to know them a little bit better, and invite them to give it a higher, higher level. It's challenging if people are afraid to have that conversation. But if they're not, if they're focused on the other instead of their own, themselves, I think it really liberates them and it liberates the donor to give more. Yeah, you know, I, um, I haven't ever fundraised, but I know I'd be very good at it. And I always thought that when my career ends, so to speak, that that's something I, I potentially would look into doing um, to help out. And but I uh, and a, a lot of our listeners who are listening are, are executive directors for small nonprofits. Sure. All right. So they're under they're under five million, under three million. You know, the average is about one point five million in revenue, and so they don't have a fundraising specialist, right? The executive director is they you know, do running it all. A, yeah, they do it all, right? Yeah. And and I think so the first thing I would do if I was an executive director, and that was my scenario that I just, you know, that, that I just said, is I would hire a, a an intern. And uh and you can go to internships.com and we use it all the time for my company. And you hire an intern, and I would say Okay, here's our database of all of the people who've donated to us. And that, and then I would use Jay's uh, five steps that he just gave us. It was five, right? Yeah, right? five or six different characteristics. Yeah, five or six different characteristics. And I would go down each one of those. And I'd say is come up with a list of 2.5% because you said 97. 5%. Right. And I would say is give me a list of the 2.5% of the people who have what we would determine as the most wealth or in those categories that you gave to us. And then every single day I would make one call to yeah. each one of those people or on a Friday I'd make five calls. Right. But you know, and that's the way. And I think that the way that you just said it, uh, makes it so easy to say, I just want to thank you. 
what can I ask? Uh, what motivated you to give us the, the the funds that we needed? And I really appreciate it. And listen. Yeah, and, and no, I agree. Um, I, I mean, if you can do that with a staff member or with an outside service, sometimes it's it can be more efficient um, mm. than with an intern. But a good intern can bring a lot of value to many things, including the thankless task um, of uh, making sure that when people are referencing the organization on social media, that um, that somebody is reaching out to those people to say, I see you, I hear you, I value you. And I'm not saying that a person has to be 22 to use social media because I use it every day. What I am saying is that sometimes uh, we are more open to utilizing an intelligent uh, emerging person in the field bringing them into our office, we're, we're more open to trying new things if we do doing it with a new person. But, but, um, but I absolutely agree with that process. And we do have a number of um, companies in the space that, we, uh, that are available to us that will even test a file at no charge. Now, I'm affiliated with one of them in the interest of disclosure because I, I um, host a series called the Mastermind Series for a company called Donor Search, which does screening of this type. But there are, but I'll mention a few of them so people can can just do this. If they're interested in this kind of work and they either can't get an intern or they want to supplement what that kind of person might do, they can go to these companies. They can say, "What do you have to offer?" They can um, then run a test file, you know, a few hundred names to see what it looks like. So they're not being sold anything, and then they can determine how they like working with a company as well as what the cost would be, and that doesn't cost anything. So there are companies like. Um, uh, WealthX, uh, uh, BlackBot, which has a, a division called that has been called at least historically Target Analytics. Um, there is a company called iWave, um, and uh, there's a, there's also a, a firm uh, called Windfall, I think it is. And then there's Donor Search, uh, which is the firm that I do all the work with. And in fact, they'll uh, they'll be happy to run a file for anybody if you just tell them that that I sent you. But, but in each of these cases, you should be able to go to a company first having determined what matters to you. Like, what does a donor look like? What does a successful donor relationship look like? So you look for lookalikes and then go to the companies and see what kind of information do you offer to see if they'll have that kind of information. And then you can give them a file, a sample file, um, not just to test the company, but to test what you know about your own file. And I think this is a very helpful exercise for all of us because the executive directors you mentioned that they, you know, they're working their rear ends off on everything they do, which means they only have so much time to look at all the donors, right? So if, if they don't, you know, die from having a hand cramp from signing thank you letters or trying to run an event every so often, I mean, it's, it's really tough work because they're trying to run everything and then do this. Well, this will accelerate the process and give them a small pool of, of individuals who really do care and really do have resources. So it means that their work is made a little bit easier, but the way to accelerate that process is to do what you suggested with a staff member or to give it to one of these companies and let them test it and give you the file back. It, it's, uh, it's sort of like Hot Wheels. So for anybody who remembers Hot Wheels, um, <laughs> the problem with Hot Wheels is that the cars would slow down, right? And so they built many years ago this thing where when your car got to it, it would accelerate it. That's all the screening is. And by the way, for those who do this work on their own with Google, uh, that's awesome, except that Google is doubling in size. I don't know how many days, ever so many days, and Google is full of lots of information, which 
is not useful for fundraising. So to go back to the analogy about driving down a highway, if we're trying to raise money for a project that's a year from now, there are a lot of places we can stop on the sides of the road that might interest us or might provide an opportunity. And I'm all about opportunity. I'm a definitely a glass is half full guy. But the problem with that approach is that there's too much information. And what we need to do is we need to find the right information and we need to get into our hands now and start spending as much time as possible developing a relationship with a few people who make the biggest difference. And the, and the craziest thing about all this, now I'm really on a soapbox, so I apologize. The craziest <laughs> thing about all this is that I think, I really do honestly believe that those people are just waiting for a call and they have no idea why we're not calling them. So uh, there was an organization I gave to this last year, and I'm not a big donor, but I aspire to be. And so one organization, I read a book by this brilliant guy talking about uh, issues of social justice. Um, and I, so I had no connection to the organization with which he's affiliated. So I started giving $100 a month. Now, that may, that's not going to be their biggest donor, but I'm pretty sure it probably puts me in the top 5% just from doing this work. So uh, I'm, I may not be a big prospect, but they don't know that. So it, it, what, I, what I found interesting is I was still getting things that were addressed to dear friend. There are very simple things we can do when we talk about power prospect or, or whatever we want to say that are really about personalizing the relationships we have with people with resources and care to treat them like family. And the simple reason for doing this is not only is it the right thing to do, but it's a smart thing to do. Because first of all, these are people. We should treat them as human beings, not ATM machines. But secondly, if we really want to get to that destination down the road, if we really want to make the financial goal, more importantly, save lives and change lives, we need that money. Anything that is not about getting that resource into the hands of our people to achieve that mission is an impediment to success. Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, I, you know, I had another podcast with, uh, oh, I, I've mentioned the, geez, I've mentioned the company a number of times and I keep forgetting their names, but they're a, uh, a nonprofit CRM system. So sure. it, you know, allows you to store the, the information about the donor, um, you know, uh, customer relationship management is what CRM is. And, you know, one of the things that uh, the software did a really, really good job with was, you know, separating what communication could go to what based on a set of criteria. Mm -hmm. And in this case, you know, giving your example that you give, you're giving a hundred dollars a month, which I agree with you is, is a, a, you know, a, a sign that it's for a, a, a potential person who could be in that 2.5% that you want to contact that that person should be getting a different type of communication, regardless if it's other, outside of you giving a call, but regardless, it, that's uh, a little bit uh, more, uh, sorry, <laughs> I forgot to shut my phone off. Um, you know, so, you know, I think there are, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot to it. And that is, you know, I, what my, the original thing that I was saying was, you know, when you see this big pull of people, of people, pool of people, that and it, it gets overwhelming. So if I said to you, you know, Jay, uh, here's five people that you need to call in the next thirty days. Does that seem challenging to you? It it doesn't. Okay, but so let me throw the question back to you, and it doesn't to you either, right? 
So why? Why is that? Because for some people, when we talk to them, Stephen, they're going to say, you know, I, I have all these, I'm too busy, right? Or uh, I, um, you know, there's something else I have to do that's more important. There are a lot of reasons that people get. But I, but isn't it really about some discomfort or fear? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, yeah, so I think there's, to answer your question, I think there's two components. The first one is fear and skill um, that I'm afraid I don't, uh, you know, Number two is priorities. So, you know, what is my priority? Well, my priority, if I'm a, an ex- executive director, which a lot of executive directors are who like the operational side of their organization, they like doing that work. That's why they got involved. Then, then they're like, you know, I, 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 I can't pull myself away from this to do that because I like doing this other thing a lot better. And I don't like doing the fundraising part of it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. So I, I, you know, so I think it's a matter of priorities. And I I think, you know, I think regardless if you're running a business or if you're running a nonprofit, if you are not adaptable to change, then you are going to go by the side. uh, You're going to go become a dodo bird. Right. You are going to become a woolly mammoth, a mammoth. You know, you are just not going to. Uh, stay, uh, you're not going to make it. Yeah, you know? we, we have to be fresh. And it's not yeah. just to keep our jobs. It's because it really gets the job done. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it, it, this is so crazy. This this fear, it's, it's something that so many of the people we know experience, sales and fundraising and so many things in public speaking, and it's completely understandable. And I've, I've suffered from it too. So, uh, you know, we may as well, you know, make our testimony here in the church of the internet. So yep. mine is that uh, I was um, I-, I was definitely afraid to fly. I went through a period uh, where I just didn't want to get on a plane very much because I had a couple bad flights, one back from Japan. But then there was 9-11. Now, we all have our 9-11 story and you're in Jersey. So I'm, I'm this is your show. I don't know if you want to tell that story or not, but mm-hmm. both probably know a lot of people who yes. live through some element of that. Too. Yeah. Um, so for me, this is this sounds like it's two steps removed, but it stuck with me before I flew, which is that uh, I was uh, scheduled to be on flight 93 the two Mondays prior. Oh, my God. Two Mondays prior. So I was totally safe. Right. And I woke up that morning and I felt like it was really early because that was an early flight. And I <sighs> live in Connecticut. So I'd have to go to Newark. Right. So it was. I was, I didn't want to get on the plane. I just, you know, first of all, I didn't really like flying, but I did it all the time. And then I just thought, I don't want to get on the plane. And so I, I, you know, and oh, don't tell anybody. I called up people and I said, I'm just not feeling well. Anyway, but then nothing happened. I thought, well, proves I have zero intuition and I should have just gotten on the damn plane. Anyway, of course, everything that happened, happened. I didn't wow. even remember that for a while about that association. Hmm. And I'm certainly not suggesting I had some premonition because I did not. It was just a coincidence. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because afterwards, that just amplified my fear of flying, my irrational fear of flying. And eventually, I coped with it with two ways. And they're kind of the things we were talking about with sales and fundraising. And one is information, right? So understanding what the process is, getting comfortable with the steps to make the phone call or get on the airplane. Um, What might happen in a meeting? That's sort of like turbulence. If you understand what turbulence is, it doesn't make the turbulence feel any better, but you understand the turbulence does not kill you. And that's just like the meeting when they they ask you these tough questions. 
when you get to the end and you have to make the ask and you get the chicken bone in your throat, as Jerry Panis used to say, uh, for those who know Jerry and taught many of us in the field, you, you well, you, maybe you just have to practice saying, would you consider uh, making a contribution of $500,000 and then doing what you said, being quiet. And that's practice. So all the practice is the intellectual component of getting over fear. But then the other part I deeply believe is a matter of getting outside of ourselves. And so this is a word that uh, of, 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 uh, of affection to every executive director who might spend a few minutes listening with us today. Um, we are not in your shoes, but we do feel your pain. You're doing something tremendously important. Yep. We understand why you don't want to go out and ask some person for money, especially some rich person somewhere who doesn't seem to have the same experience as you do. That person out there is waiting for a call because they need permission. No matter how haughty and successful they might seem, they're waiting for permission to invest in your work to make something great happen. They are not going to do it without your visit and without knowing they can trust you and you can trust them. They need that call. And what's going to get us comfortable is not just the practice. That's important. But it's also realizing that it's not about us. And it's not really even about that person. It's about that kid that we're going to save from dying from leukemia. It's about the person who's down at the shelter that we're trying to get into a house for the first time in 20 years. That's why we're in business. That's why the executive director is in business. And God love him for that. So now we have to get over ourselves and get over this thing we have about this other person with a few bucks and help them to make the investment in the thing that matters to us both, the care of the other. And I, I really think that if we can get outside of our own heads, we can make the ask. Yeah, I, I would add two things to that too. Really good stuff uh, you're saying, Jay. And that is the first thing is when you wake up every morning as an executive director, um, and, you know, I would say is, what do you think the number one biggest thing is? And this isn't a question for you, Jay. This is a, uh, a question I'm going to answer. Um, and that is, what is, you wake up every day and you say, what's the number one thing that I could do today that will make the biggest difference to my cause? And I would tell you that 99.9% .9 of the time, it is fundraising. It's fundraising. It is. And so if you're not spending the majority of your time in fundraising, um, then I think what you need to do is the biggest problem is not that you aren't fundraising. The biggest problem is uh, you need to get a better handle on your time and your day. And you need to delegate a lot of the things that you are doing that allows you to free you up of the fundraising. And then of course you need to tackle the problem about how do I do it? And that's when you call sure. people like Jay or you read a lot and you do stuff like that. And that comes back to the original thing that we were talking about is you got to be willing to change. I don't know any successful person um, unless they're incredibly unique um, that doesn't uh, change on a constant basis. And, uh, and I think, so that's the number one thing is if, if you've been doing this for a while as an executive director and you, you know you need to change to become a better fundraiser, the first thing you need to do is manage your time differently and better. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so when you are working with your clients mm -hmm. on fundraising, what is the number one thing that you found is the biggest obstacle? 
You know, it, it may be what we're talking about. Um, I, I've been working with someone recently who has, you know, they have the experience, they have the skills, but they keep, they keep wanting, you know, more planning in advance of, of making some of those um, outreaches that they need to make. Um, and it's understandable because it gives them confidence and it allows them to then um, share that plan with others in the team they need to be on the same page. So I do understand all that. But at some level, um, if we can just put our heads back into what got us all in this in the first place, I mean, not, not just for the salary, right? Whatever it was, we decided to do this rather than something else. If we can get back to that place where we just said, um, I'm going to do this because it, it gives me a chance to, to do something meaningful, then um, then we can get past past some of of this you know constant doubt and 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 over you know self-reference and and you know constantly looking in the mirror. Um, so I, I I'd say that's the the quick answer is it's it's again people looking for lots and lots and lots of runway for something that maybe sometimes just requires um, what you said, making a commitment to perhaps one hour a day to pick up the phone or, and, and I'm saying this because there are people of lots of different ages listening. It could also mean picking up the phone to text people. That's cool too, to talk to them on their preferred social media platforms. There are good arguments for that everywhere from TikTok, which yes, I am a user to Twitter and Facebook and other things, Instagram. There are lots of ways of conversing with people that make sense for them, but it's just doing it. Because the, if the, the minute we, we really confine ourselves is when we build walls around ourselves. So the hardest part, the thing I'm always fighting is these walls that we build around ourselves that prevent us from reaching out to people, from asking them to do things with us that they want to do, from um, making a solicitation that they need to make, and then eventually from just set, inviting them to give. Uh, all those things are just barriers of our own making. Yeah, you know, like one of the things, listen, time management has always been my uh, strength, right? And and it's interesting when you see the way, you know, my day and my life is arranged, um, this isn't an ego thing. Uh, I'm just a uh, right. ca- comparison thing. When you look at, I'm very calm throughout the day because I'm not, you know, doing a million things. I'm focusing on what's going to have the biggest effect, like this podcast, for example, right? Um, uh, whereas I see a lot of my friends where they're just running around with their heads cut off, right? And they're, you know, they're nearly they're just kind of a squirrel on a, you know, on a uh, circle, just running, uh, you know, and not really getting anywhere. And and so I think that's the number one priority is, and I, and, and so the way I, I was saying that, because the, one of the things I do a, a good job in is planning. And so I love um, on a Friday, I typically after lunch, I'll go have a cup of coffee every week and I'll bring, and I'll, that will be my hour of planning for the following week or for the following month or for the following year. You know, I'm looking at my business plan and saying, okay, where are we against? So I, you know, but it's on my calendar. It's a scheduled appointment. So, and something else I enjoy. I enjoy going out and getting a cup of coffee and then kind of sitting down and and doing that type of work. So, you know, I think, you know, one of the things you need to do is make an appointment with yourself on your calendar 
yeah. at a time where you can kind of commit it. And even if you need to take someone on your staff and say is, I need you to do me a favor. I need to, you know, at, at this time, on this day, I need you to make sure that I am doing my fundraising calls. But there's, these are all tricks, no, right? No, but that's, that's the thing is that, um, it, I, and now I'm trying to pair the two of the last things we talked about. And I know that you do both, right? So you take the time to plan and then you execute. Yeah. And you don't just do one or the other. And that's, that's really important too. So, and maybe back to your illusion before, right? There were different ways to get trained in doing these things. Both of us do this kind of work. There are many other people trained. There are lots of books I have on my shelf about how to do things. And that's all important. Um, but then it's a matter of execution, executing you, the time you, your own time management to make sure that the important things get done. So it's the important, not the urgent. And then the second part is that you actually execute on the things that you determined in that quiet time, uh, your own personal resolutions for the week or the day. Um, so it's not just an endless to-do list, like most of us, yeah. have, where yeah. the notepads stack up in the corner of the room. And I've, yeah. I've been a victim of that. So, But blending these two things is, is a wonderful thing. And uh, it, you know, if people find that they can't do one or the other and the, and the how-to books or sessions with you or people like myself don't do the trick, Sometimes having um, a little squad, they're your allies at other organizations, your peer group, where you can compare notes, yes. um, that can also be helpful as a you know, mentoring exercise. Yeah, the, I mean, the last thing I will say is one of the things I noticed um, in my first 10 years of my career, yeah. I mean, after, I, uh, after Xerox, the first 10 years after that, I would read everything I could and I would be learning, learning, learning and reading. And, uh, and you know, I would, I would drive my team crazy because I'd always be coming in with a new idea. And, you know, finally I got to a point where I said, you know what, I'm going to read like a quarter of what I'm reading and I'm going to just do a better job of executing what I've learned or read. Mm-hmm. And um, because, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who just they keep learning and learning, learning, and but they don't execute what they actually learn. Yeah, I see that, too. And, and I think that, you know, less is more. It's just like we were talking about 2.5 percent of your of your donors are the ones you should be focusing in on. Look at doing uh, uh, more uh, in-depth work, not more tasks and. Uh, I, th- I think, you know, I think you and I are both on the kind of the same page in this regards. Yeah, I think so. I, I yeah. really appreciate that. And I hope when people hear us talking about it, they don't they don't dismiss some of this as being um, so easy to say on the sidelines, because I think both of us have lived our lives in different places doing different things. And it's not that we have this massive experience we're drawing from. We're also seeing it right now every day with people we know, organizations we care about, where we see people, as you said, like chickens running around with their heads cut off. And we care about them. We know that the work they're doing is really important and we want them to be successful. And so they have to give themselves a little bit of grace, a little bit of time, a little bit of planning and give themselves the space to execute. Because if they don't do those things, I mean, of course, we know we lose a lot of people in this field to burnout. And and how could that happen when all the good we're doing in the world? Is it because we don't make enough money? Maybe sometimes, mm-hmm. but I think it's really what you've said, which is the biggest problem is the one we create for ourselves. And there are ways out of that trap. 
It takes time, takes energy, takes again, give yourself a little bit of pat on the back once in a while, but it is possible to see past your giant to-do list and all the other stuff coming through your email box and focus on what's important. Yeah. And I would add that um, there's a reason why both you and I have gray hairs on the top of our head. Okay. That we've learned a few things along the way and that's what's given us the gray hairs. Um, and I think, you know, experience, boy, it really matters. You know, it really makes a big difference. And uh, so I think you and I have had experience where we've run into the walls ourselves a number of times and then picked ourselves up and said, you know what? There's a better way. I plan so. to run into a few walls this week. <laughs> well, I didn't say that goes away, but <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I, I, that's all the time we have for today. It was a very good conversation. I would like to thank so, so very much, Jay Frost from Frost on Fundraising for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend. Uh, uh, and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, the Nonprofit MBA podcast that's become extremely popular. Very proud of it. I think the information that we're providing with great guests like Jay is really invaluable. Um, if you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app to help us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitnbapodcast.com. Jay, uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, probably best thing would be to just contact me either via the major social channels, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, or you can find me at j at frostonfundraising.com. I have a website at frostonfundraising.com. Uh, you can also find me through my friends over at DonorSearch, which is at donorsearch.net. It's a great company, um, all about research, uh, great donor intelligence solutions. And I also work with my friend Brian Lacey at Brian Lacey & Associates. So you can find them at brianlaceyandassociates.com. Fantastic. Thanks, Jay. And to all our listeners that are out there, uh, uh, hopefully Jay and I didn't beat you up too much today, but I just want to thank you for all of you making this a much better world. Mm -hmm. You guys are doing all of the work and uh, we all have to do our part. Jay has to do his part. I have to do my part. Everybody has to do a do a better job being a human being, being kinder to each other. But you guys are doing it all the time. Pat yourselves on the back. You deserve it. You deserve praise. And I'm praising you right now. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Everybody's winter's coming and most of the country is a beautiful fall. Uh, get out there. Enjoy yourself. You deserve it. Everybody have a fantastic day. 